Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein, and this is Spy Talk. Two men living in New York City have been charged with conspiring to act as agents of the Chinese government. And prosecutors say they helped set up and operate a secret Chinese government police station right here in the city. Fox Eyes' Chris Welch has the latest from Chinatown. This nondescript office building in the heart of bustling Chinatown in lower Manhattan has a dark secret. That was federal prosecutor Breon Peace discussing the arrest of two New York men on charges of operating a covert Chinese police station in lower Manhattan on behalf of Beijing's secret police. According to the feds, the office portrayed itself as a kind of unofficial consulate to help Chinese citizens in the U.S. with things like visa problems. But in reality, they say, it was a spy base to keep track of and harass critics of the Chinese Communist Party in this country. The so-called police station in Manhattan's Chinatown was allegedly set up in February 2022 and operated by Beijing's Ministry of Public Security as part of an international campaign against Chinese pro-democracy activists and other political opponents around the world. Now, this is old territory for my friend Nicholas F. Miades, who recently retired from the U.S. government after spending 30 years watching China and particularly Chinese intelligence operations for the CIA and the Departments of State and Defense. In the 1990s, he was also the author of a groundbreaking book called Chinese Intelligence Operations. And today he's a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. Nick Estimiades, welcome back to Spy Talk. Great to see you again. Um, so what's going on in New York with the police station? Uh, is this a new aggressive policy by Chinese uh, intelligence or is this more this is more a show of our crackdown on Chinese intelligence? What's happening? Yeah, actually, it's the latter. This is um, China has been doing this through numerous means, including the Ministry of State Security, 12th Bureau, Ministry of Public Security. They and the United Front Work Department, they have been working against um, dissidents, democracy advocates, religious organizations, nonprofits uh, abroad for decades. Um, we have now in the United States, for one reason or another, I guess it's gotten serious enough, but the FBI has taken a very aggressive posture towards them and towards not letting this happen uh, in the country. Um, it has happened for quite some time to date. It seems to me that these activities have been going on for some time now. Why all of a sudden have we decided to crack down? Yeah, so that's a part I can't explain. Um, I don't know if it's a just realization. I, I mean, no, I know there are certain arrests that were made uh, months ago that the FBI was told about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, I, I granted sometimes these investigations take time. Um, and prior to um, nonprofits releasing the information that they had discovered about Chinese police stations, the Bureau may, in fact, not have known about it. So, mm. you know, they, they have moved aggressively on it since that time. But uh, but there have been problems in the Chinese diaspora overseas, not only in the United States, but globally 
for decades with the Communist Party hunting people down. You know, we reported last year that uh, the Chinese and other foreign intelligence services have been active in penetrating local and state police to get uh, collaborators, uh, you know, paying them a few bucks to track down names and so on uh, of dissidents. Uh, What do you know about that? Well, um, I've actually worked with a couple of police departments uh, across the country on these issues. Um, Espionage is not just espionage. It's not just, you know, focusing on um, on secret stuff out of the government. You know, it's like a cancer that infects society at multiple levels. You have to do everything from have identification to, um, you know, to travel documents, to be able to rent houses, all those types of things have to be done to support espionage or covert influence activities. Mm -hmm. And to do that, you need access into state governments in the United States and police services. So it's it's a normal infiltration process. And given China's aggressive work against dissidents, it's something that uh, that they that they need to conduct their work, either that or private investigators, things like that. Mm. So why do you think that they took the step to to open these so-called police departments, police offices outside their embassies and consulates? Why not maintain diplomatic cover for them? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. If they're, you know, if they're legitimate, you know, if they're legitimate and they're only there to help the Chinese, you know, overseas Chinese process paperwork and do those sorts of things in, in, you know, back in China, then that's a normal consulate function. That is what every consulate across the world from every government does. So, okay, maybe you increase the staff there if needed. So why the secret nature of it? Why, you know, put them within the civilian population? Why out of stores? Well, the answer is fairly obvious because they're covert activities and they're not doing, you know, open paperwork that people just need in their daily lives. They're really hunting down dissidents. Mm. Now, not to belabor the point, but again, uh, intelligence services around the world, including ourselves, uh, put intelligence officers undercover as State Department officers and consulates and so on. And that allows them to have, uh, you know, diplomatic cover should they be caught uh, and they can walk out. But uh, in this case, two uh, uh, gentlemen have been arrested here uh, and they're likely to see some serious jail time. So, again, not to belabor the point, but why don't they just do this kind of uh, stuff uh, within cover of their embassies or consulates, what's what's the benefit of this? Well, they do do some of that stuff out of their embassies, right? right. So they they do that type of work out of their out of the embassies as well. So this, you know, it may have been at the local level. Um, I think it was the Fuzhou Police Department may have been, you know, just done at a local level to try and, you know, to try and bring people back to court, to try and bring money back, to try and bring dissidents back. So it could have just been local governments getting out of hand. It could have been, you know, we don't know how far up the MPS. You mean local governments in China? Yes. uh, uh, Mounting their own intelligence operations in the U.S.? Right. We've seen it with China's court system again in New York, just out of the court system, um, you know, going to harass people that saying that they owe money from debts against them in China and they better pay up or else. Huh. So it could have been local. You know, I, I hate to put the context like this, but when you look at Chinese governance, 
it's a lot like the mafia or organized crime. Well, you know, you have capos, you have independent elements operating, and you know, there's just no idea of of following another country's laws. Mm-hmm. Right. And before, actually, uh, there's a former head of Chinese uh, intelligence at the Public Security Bureau in prison now for graft. Right. He was uh, um, dethroned. Nice. Uh, the, the, how much time you got? There are many of them. Um, Xi Jinping did a sweep last September, October of vice ministers in the Ministry of Public Security, as well as um, in the courts, judges in the courts, senior people. They had all been with the previous regime of uh, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, right? Mm. So before the People's Congress, he did that. He wiped out opposition completely. There have also been uh, people arrested at the vice ministerial level for the Ministry of State Security. Um, so graft and corruption is, is sort of a norm. And, uh, and you know, political opponents are the ones usually picked off. That would that would be like, I mean, we have a lot of critics, uh, and there's a long line of critics of our FBI and CIA and other intelligence organizations. But one thing you don't hear much about is uh, top CIA, FBI, et cetera, officials, you know, making a profit out of their jobs. And yet this seems to be rife in, in Chinese intelligence and their internal security uh, organs. In Chinese society. So I, I, I try not to label this as corruption because that's a very mm-hmm. Western standard. That's our standard that we put on it. Um, I had a friend who was a mayor of a small town in China. And he said, Nick, you just don't understand. I mean, I, my wife and I have to crawl on the ground below the windows because there is always a line of people out in front of my house wanting to give me presents, you mm. know, wanting to curry favor with the mayor. Hmm. So that that's the way business is done in China. It's not a legalistic society like in the United States. Mm. It's a humanistic society mm. where everything is done on personal relationships and the law really doesn't mean anything. Mm, so right. whether it's espionage, whether it's what we call corruption, doing business, it's, you know, forget the law. It's all a human to human relationship. Mm. And they've been at it for a thousand years or more. Uh, we're new at this game. Uh, they evolved out of an entirely different system of relationships. Circling back to Xi Jinping for a bit. Is this, uh, this what a, seems to be apparently a new level of aggression by Chinese intelligence overseas? Do you attribute that to Xi Jinping? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in fact, the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs guys will complain to you that they didn't like being called a wolf warriors, you know, as, as the mm. West had dubbed them after mm-hmm. the uh, Chinese movies. Um, but Xi Jinping was every time someone said something aggressive against the United States or foreign government, he would send a personal note to that person, uh, you know, great job type of thing. So it was driving an incentive in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for ever more outlandish behavior in publicly attacking, um, you know, foreign, uh, foreign governments, particularly the United States. And this is because, you know, this is what drives that type of fervor uh, so it is him behind this. And if it, you know, if it's successful in building China and developing China and expanding its influence and its power globally, he gets all the glory. If it backfires on him, you know, if, if it winds up in a conflict or in some way dramatically impacting China, he gets all that backlash as well. Hmm. Is he riding a tough, uh, does he have a tough harness on these guys as a public security and intelligence people? 
or are they uh, allowed or given a certain level of uh, of um, authority to act on their own? Yeah, he um, he has. Well, you know, how, how do you know what degrees it, it exists with this? Um, but he has tightened the reins significantly, more so than any leader. I would say more so than Mao. Um, other than the period with the Red Guard, but but he um, he has really tightened the reins on them more so than any previous leader. So he's absolutely running the show. So Chris Ray has said that the scale of Chinese spying in the U.S. has just blown him away. His wars were blew me away. Um, he said that the FBI opens a new China-related counterintelligence investigation every 12 hours on average, and now that the FBI now has over 2,000 such cases. That was a year ago or so that he said right. that. What, what's uh, uh, the, the KGB oh. never had anything like that. No, I and as, as I say, because I've been, as you know, I've been crying into the wind about this for the better part of 30 years. Um you know, two cases a day, basically, 365 days a year, 730 cases a year, okay, over 56 field offices. So it's, you know, the, the problem with our approach is that we don't approach it strategically. We approach it as a tactical, like playing basketball one-on-one and play, instead of playing a zone defense, instead of turning up our offense and our offensive counterintelligence operations and such to try and destroy or eliminate that apparatus. Hmm. So, so long as you're on defense and so long as you're playing and trying to arrest your way out of a situation, which, you know, God love the FBI for what they're doing, but you, you cannot arrest your way out of this situation. It's well, not going to happen. The numbers are too great. Let's talk about what you recommended deal in a more strategic plane. Yeah. I think that there has to be a level of deterrence. I think that, you know, for anyone caught um, stealing intellectual property, whether on the research front or whether, um, you know, or, or whether within industry, you know, many of them do it because they can get away with it. They can go back to China and start their own businesses. So fine. The United States has to be able to say, well, you're never getting a visa here. You'll never fly on an aircraft globally. We'll work with our allies to put the same type of counterterrorist list or the same type of terrorism list for theft of property. You won't sell here. You won't sell in Western Europe. You know, wherever we have good allies, you won't sell. So take away the incentive. For that to happen right now, we have U.S. universities in partnership with Chinese companies that are on the entities list, hmm. you know, on the non-export entities list. But they pump money into U.S. universities and they have us doing research for them. Hmm. It's not a strategic approach. We have no idea, you know, where we want to be with China in ten years. You know how we want them to behave relative to us. Are you saying, and, you know, this is an extension of what you call, you might call harder than soft power, how the Chinese operate in the United States with Confucius societies and all these other things. But you're not advocating that we completely sever relations, that the government intervene in universities to sever relations with Chinese. No, no, I'm not saying sever at all. I'm saying, but if China conducts cyber attacks, you know, against the United States. Oh, no, we're not doing that. Well, fine. We're taking your state-owned enterprises off the stock exchange. You know, that, mm. that's it. Sorry, that's that's what's going to happen if we fa- if we catch you doing it again. Mm. And then you have to ask the Brits to say, yep, nope, can't come to the London exchange. 
and strangle them for all the equity, for all the uh, the investment that they would get in. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to take offensive measures to serve as a deterrence because otherwise, you know, they do the same thing they've always done. They say, you know, we're not doing it. And then after we're not doing it, okay, I'll, we'll, we'll do everything we can to clamp down on it to stop mm-hmm. it. And then they do absolutely nothing. It's mm-hmm. true for cyber attacks. It's true for fentanyl. I mean, it's, you know, it's just the way they, they, they play ball. And the U.S. US being a very legalistic society says, okay, you know, don't do it anymore. Thank you. You know, we'll, we'll, it's a win-win. Well, we, we, we sanctioned them, uh, which has very limited use, uh, evidently. And, and in some cases is cutting off our own nose, uh, because we need things from China still. We still have a very robust, uh, trading relationship with China. Yep. But in, for example, the present case uh, in New York, um, I think 34 Chinese intelligence officers or officials were indicted, but they are beyond the reach of the Justice Department. We right. don't have, not that they would ever turn them over, but we don't have an extradition treaty with the Chinese. So um, so you're saying if if they use cover of a particular industry to take adversarial um, um, operations against the United States. We should delist them from the stock market or urge the state. I don't even know if we have authority to do that. Yeah, we do. Um, You can the SEC can do that. It's um, uh, and I'll give you an example. There were Mm -hmm. 214 Chinese companies on the U S stock exchange. Of those, those two hundred. I mean, there are more than that, but of those two hundred and fourteen, those were special because they weren't abiding by uh, the accounting standards, weren't providing any of their accounting, which they they have to provide for investors. The SEC kept giving them waiver letters, and this happened up until a year and a half ago. To or actually, I'm sorry, the Trump administration took this on and pushed the SEC. Actually, fired the head then of the SEC put someone else in, talk to, you know, push through Congress to pass a law. Now we're quite, and of course, the minute this happened, China made corporate um, data state secrets. Okay. So they didn't want to release anything that was happening in their their company. So we had the SEC trying to put the U.S. thrift savings plan over a trillion dollars into these emerging markets. Okay. Now that's a matter for the New York Stock Exchange to police and the SEC, of course. But let's relate it now. Well, the Congress to, policed it actually. The Congress made a law. And Congress, right. Right. To that pass said, a law you know, that can that the SEC can enforce. Right. Uh, but you're not saying all these 214 companies, I think you you cited, uh, they're not involved in subversion here in the United States. No, but some of them were AVIC, the China um, Aviation uh, Investment Corporation. I mean, these were China's major state-owned enterprises building weapon systems that they're threatening uh, against the United States. I, I don't see the logic of allowing us to invest, to invest billions of dollars into the same state-run enterprise that is threatening us. Hmm. So that that that's the issue. There are lots of issues like that that the U.S. could creatively apply pressure to China, raising the cost for them for conducting these types of actions. Hmm. The, the previous case um, involving this type of thing, an earlier case last year, was Julian Jin, who worked for Zoom. Um, Jin was their technical security officer in China. Hmm. And the FBI put out a criminal complaint 
on Julian Jim, on Julian Jin, and what they were doing, I think this was two years ago, um, they were conducting, they were allowing, they gave Zoom, this is, gave five cover um, accounts to the Ministry of Public Security who were going in and infiltrating meetings by Chinese dissident groups, by Chinese democracy groups, by religious groups. Yes, that's I, I meant to bring that up, that the Chinese here were harassing or from China were harassing online gatherings of uh, people criticizing, uh, you know, advocating democracy in China, criticizing the Chinese Communist Party. They they get in the middle of these discussions and start screaming at people and total, you know, right. creating chaos in these meetings. Right, but they did. They were allowed in because Zoom gave them cover accounts to get in. Well, now, are you saying that Zoom wittingly provided yes. the Chinese government with cover they, accounts? They did. And um, in fact, you can read the emails in that criminal complaint between the Ministry of State Security, the Ministry of Public Security, and the Zoom technical security director going back and forth because the MSS wants to leave this, uh, you know, stop interrupting them, let them collect on who on who's violating Chinese law, you know, expressing democracy uh, and, uh, um, you know, opinions. And the Ministry of Public Security wants to dissuade, uh, you know, arrest, go back and go after the families, et cetera. So there's actually an argument, you know, do we arrest or do we um, uh, or, or do we let it go to collect more information? Same arguments we used to have with the FBI decades ago uh, for these types of things. But Zoom and, and Zoom posted this on their website, not as an apology, but they posted and said, look, this is what's happening. Um, the FBI has come in and they identified we fired that employee their technical security director, they put nine other employees under administrative you know, leave while they figured mm -hmm. out what was going on. They said the leadership of Zoom didn't know anything about this. Okay, I wanted to clarify that. It was this one individual who uh, uh, aided the Chinese in infiltrating these circles. It wasn't the company itself. The, no, that's the not company true. Leaders. It, was, it, was, it was nine other people in the company, US-based, who acted you know, on instructions from this individual. So now the company says, no, you know, the leadership didn't know about it. This occurred about the same time that they had accidentally, as they put it, moved data to servers in China, which they said they would never do. So what happened to the investigation? Where did it go from here? Hmm. You know, we saw the uh, the indictment or you know, basically of one individual. Hmm. What happened to the nine employees that were collaborating in the United States? Uh, it would seem to me from just the information you've given me, I wasn't familiar with that particular case, but it seems to me they were acting as unregistered agents of the Chinese government. Have they been called to account? No, they have not. Um, the last we heard on this was Zoom on their website, on their, their um, blog, saying that they put those nine individuals on administrative leave. Hmm. Haven't heard anything about it since. Hmm. So how actively, I mean, they were actively collaborating. Were they doing it, you know, with the idea of, of, of approval, you know, was a leadership. Okay. Well, we're not going to say anything about this. Go ahead. We have to obey Chinese law, which is what they said internally. Yeah. Well, it's Chinese law. We have to obey it. So where's the accountability? What do we know is the end of the story here? Well, and, yeah, it begs the question of why the Justice Department didn't charge them with being unregistered Chinese agents. 
Yeah, it, it, it's certainly, you know, wh- what happened to the investigation is the question we should be asking. Yeah, you know, maybe gonna... they investigated it and said, <laughs> you know what, they, they didn't know or something like that. Maybe maybe there was some reason they didn't continue the investigation. I got it. I'm all for that. But there should be an answer. Hmm. And as far as we can tell so far, there isn't. Yeah, we'll look into that. Now, this seems to be, or before we move on completely from service, you got a position on TikTok. I'm going to assume that you don't like them here. Well, I I don't think I'm as overly concerned about it um, as as the U.S. is. I mean, hmm. you know, if it was any other country or company, uh, we, we wouldn't have this type of concern. We just know the potential value for that type of data and how it could be used particularly in the hands of when you're doing influence operations, um, whether that be electronically or individuals. And when you marry it up with all the other types of data, for example, personally identifiable information, PII, and China's estimated to have that on 85% of Americans, you know, financial data and lob into that, you know, uh, internet of things, data from the internet of things, you can build an extraordinarily comprehensive profile on people and should you want to move levers of the economy or levers of the country and try and influence it covertly, it, 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 it particularly with artificial intelligence, which the Chinese are very advanced on, it really allows extraordinary opportunities to do that. It's like something out of a science fiction movie, but but it is the truth. So I understand the concerns. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think that we've you have any sense of whether we've uh, gotten that there are whether there might be more of these unofficial police stations around the United States? I I noticed in my research today that the uh, Madrid based human rights group Safeguard Defenders uh, found that uh, Xi Jinping's government has set up more than 100 such police posts to monitor the activity of uh, the Chinese diaspora, you know, dissidents, uh, critics, uh, democracy advocates, and so on. A hundred around the world. So yeah, it makes me think, I think is the number. It makes me think there's got to be more in the United States. Well, there, there's, um, there was always a discussion that there were two in New York, one in Chinatown and the other in Flushing. Hmm. So I don't know which, you know, which one the FBI actually hit the Manhattan one or the Flushing one. I think they hit the Manhattan one. Yeah, um, in, in Chinatown. Right. Well, there are two Chinatowns. One's in Flushing, they call it, and one's in Manhattan. I Flushing, see. Queens, and Manhattan. So I think they hit the Manhattan one. Uh, but there's always been discussion about there being one in Flushing, Queens. Uh, if you consider the scale of what we're dealing with, and I mean, less than two years ago, there were, during the Hong Kong Freedom Movement, there were people driving around in cars in, I think Seattle it was, or Oregon and um, Los Angeles area, driving around Chinese neighborhoods and what were dressed up to look exactly like copies of Chinese police cars. Um, mm. What they, yeah, what they, I think they call a Chengdu fist units uh, out of the uh, out of the Ministry of Public Security, right? With those specific counterterrorism logos. Of that they would go after, and they were driving slowly around those neighborhoods. Now, one has to ask themselves, what inspires a person to buy the exact car that the Chinese are using and to doctor it up to look exactly like a Chinese, you know, special unit police vehicle? 
Well, this is the subtlety of people saying, you know, keep your mouth shut about Hong Kong. Don't get involved. It's, you know, and we're watching you. Hmm. Hmm. So those are the types of, of things that the Chinese government does everywhere. And if you consider the scale of this activity, I mean, Sweden, it's Sweden, okay, which has a total of 92 Tibetans, half of which are children, hmm. arrested two individuals over a 10-year period, two of them that were working with the Ministry of State Security and traveling back and forth to Poland to pick up cash and instructions and going back to Sweden to report on the activities of these 92 people, mm. which, so, you know, how crazy or how paranoid do you have to get that you're really employing people overseas in embassies and on the ground to go collect on a group of less than a hundred people, like 50, 60 adults. Mm. It just, and then consider the population base in the United States, Australia, in, in other countries of the Chinese diaspora. Now, China says, well, you guys are backing these uh, NGOs, these uh, pro-democracy movements and activists. Do they have a point? Yeah, from, 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 a, from a dictatorship, of course, it's a point. Um, it, it's, you know, China has some basic rules in its policies, in its foreign policy. Don't mess with our economy. Don't mess with our social stability. And don't threaten the CCP. Outside of that, you can do anything you want. But in those three little statements, if a high school has a, uh, a speaker on democracy for China, the CCP gets involved and has gotten involved. You know, the school in Connecticut, a high school. If a um, the Houston Rockets manager says, you know, freedom in Hong Kong, they cut off the NBA $6 billion franchise in China, right? For the statement of one person mm -hmm. expressing his opinion. This is a fundamental clash of values, mm -hmm. right? It's one side says individual freedom is everything to us. And the other side says, screw your individual freedoms. You know, we'll, don't say anything that threatens our party. We rule. Don't say anything. Depends where you want to be. Back in the darkest days of the Cold War with Russia, we saw the KGB as the tip of the spear of an existential threat to the United States. Do you see uh, Chinese intelligence operations here as the tip of the spear in an existential struggle? Um, I think there is an existential struggle, um, but I don't think Chinese intelligence is the tip of the spear. I think because the way they approach things is differently differently from the way the KGB did, the old KGB, differently from the CIA or MI6 or anyone else out there. Um, it is a whole of society approach in China, driven and monitored by the CCP. So it, it's if it was just the intelligence services, we could contend with that easily. It's not. It's it's a a, a part of society. They're state-owned thousands and tens of thousands of state-owned enterprises, right, with millions of people in them, um, incentivized to go steal and collect. It's universities incentivized by the government to do the same thing. And so the result take is... take Chinese students, you know. Yeah, I mean, or just you can see all the time, going back to universities, I've identified dozens and dozens of universities that were in on the theft of either trade secrets or illegal exports. 
it's just common. So the the threat is much broader based in you know from China than it ever was in the old days of exchanging spies in Berlin. And to wrap this up, um, it seems like a almost insurmountable challenge. You can't. What you're saying let's expel hundreds and hundreds of Chinese from this country, sanction them, keep them out. What 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 does it amount to? No, it, it amounts doubling to, the size of the FBI. No, no. Again, that, that's it's the same path that we're on, and it doesn't work. Um, so you take a, take a look at uh, it's in some ways welcoming people with open arms. Purdue University did a study, and they found that Chinese students, you know, came with a very negative opinion of the United States, which did which didn't change for all their four years in school. Mm. Because they stayed with Chinese students, they spoke Chinese, they had very tight connections with the CCP, you know, with the uh, through the Chinese student associations and such. However, their opinion of the United States skyrockets when they get out of school and they go live on the economy. Because all of a sudden they find out, oh, wait a minute, this isn't like this. What the heck? This is this is great. You know, but they don't get that experience while they're locked up in the school because of the infrastructure that's been set up, not only by the CCP, but just by their own behavior. You're saying that they're they're they stay in line and they are essentially assets of the CCP while they're students here. But once they graduate and they want to live in the United States and stay in the United States and they go out and live on their own, that uh, they like it. Right. Once once they're outside of a group that's watchful on them, that, you know, they have outside contacts with Americans and they really don't hear. I mean, when I studied in Taiwan and China, you had the foreigners and and as much as you tried to get out, you still sort of gravitated to your, towards your home. Um, but once they get out into the economy and working, wow, the opinion changes dramatically. The mm. United States needs to do the opposite of protect. It needs to welcome these welcome people in. Mm-hmm. You know, the unemployment rate in youth in China is 20 something percent now. Great. Come over here. We need to welcome people in and mm-hmm. show them what a free democracy is. It's messy. It's chaotic. But show them what a free democracy is like. We've always said that that would redound to our advantage, bringing foreign students here. It's been an arm of our national security policy that we bring in foreign students here and they they like what they see and they want to stay or they return home with more American values, which I guess amounts to rank consumerism, which is a kind of a a freedom of its own uh, and extends into the political realm. Anyway, we could go on and on and on. And we have, Nick, in the past and will do in the future on the question of Chinese uh, intelligence operations in the United States. Nick after Miades, always a pleasure to have you here. Thanks again for coming on in such short notice. Thanks so much, Jeff. It's always a pleasure to be here. And that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Thanks so much for listening. Really appreciate it. By the way, you can find lots more interesting conversations like this one in our archives available at our home at MSW Network or on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, mosey on over to our Spy Talk newsletter page on Substack. If you're not familiar with Substack, you can just Google Spy Talk on your way there. Anyway, that's where my colleagues and I offer fresh reporting and analyses from the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, and military operations. 
Until then, I'm Jeff Stein, and this has been the Spy Talk Podcast. See you around. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.